So I'd invite you now to turn your copy of God's Word to Galatians, the fourth chapter. As you're turning there, I remind you, last week I asked you a question simply of, of what it's like to be a Christian. How would you describe that? How would you explain that to someone? And so a slightly different but related question this morning is when you think about being a Christian, do you think about the role that all three persons of the Trinity play in your being a Christian? Do you think about your Christianity in, in terms of the Trinity, in terms of God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Now, admittedly, the, the Trinity is it's a complex Christian doctrine. Right? And if you come across folks who say, oh, I can explain it to you with this perfect analogy, run away. There is no perfect analogy. They all break down at some level. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around. And part of that complexity comes from the fact that it's a doctrine that's not handed to us on a silver platter in the Scriptures. Right? That there's no one verse or one chapter that says, God exists in one God and three persons equal in power and glory. Right? Though that is what we come to believe from the sum total of what the Bible teaches. We, we come to believe that because of all the different places that talk about the Father's divinity and the Son's divinity and the Holy Spirit being God. And, and we, we come to believe that because of the various places in Scripture that teach us that, that all three persons have existed for eternity. And, and we come to that belief because of the places in Scripture that, that tell us about the unity of those three in one. And, and so that gives us our biblical doctrine of the Trinity is all of those places. But then once we have our eyes focused on the reality of, of this tri-unity of God, then we begin to see it more and more. We begin to see it in, in all the various places that Scripture alludes to it. And, and we really begin to appreciate it, especially when we come to those places where we see all three persons actively at work, and that's what happens here in Galatians 4 where we are this morning. So Paul is, is continuing to show the Galatian Christians the contrast of living life by the law versus living it by faith in, in the Son. And, and so last week in the final verses of chapter 3, Paul was making his contrast even more stark and was showing us our union with Christ and our adoption as sons of God. And so as we continue this morning into chapter 4, he's going to tell us more about our adoption as sons, how, it, how it's accomplished, and perhaps even more importantly, how it's experienced as a reality in our lives. And, and as Paul does that, we will see all three persons of the Trinity actively at work. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word first seven verses of Galatians 4, and, and we just stand out of, out of respect for God's Word, out of, out of reverence to it, hoping that ultimately it's our hearts that, that would be uh, standing in reverence of God's Word and not just our physical bodies. Galatians 4, 1 through 7, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, 
when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the the teaching, the, the preaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Please be seated. So as we look at these verses, we do see all three persons of the Trinity here at work in our salvation. Uh, There's an outline in your worship folder to help you follow along. But specifically, these will be the three things that we see from these verses. We'll see the Father's promise. We'll see the Son's accomplishment. And we'll see the Spirit's assurance. So let's start with the Father's promise. These verses begin with with an, an, an analogy, an illustration of a child who is promised an inheritance. So look in verses 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So imagine a family where the eldest son knows that one day he's going to inherit the father's estate. Perhaps even imagine that the father has died while that eldest son is still a child. Now, you're not going to turn a bunch of property and money over to a 10-year-old. Because that wouldn't be very wise. Right? Not smart at all. You wait until he comes of age. Until he matures. Until hopefully he's developed some responsibility. And until that time, he's under the control and the supervision of others. Guardians, managers, people who control not only the the future property, but the heir himself. And tells the heir where to go and when to go there and and what to do and, and when to do it. That's why Paul says he's really no different from a slave in the essence that he doesn't have any freedom. He doesn't have any independence. For all practical purposes, the the life of a a child heir to an estate is no different from the servants on that estate. But one day, things will drastically change because, in fact, he he will own it all. He, He will possess it all one day. It's been promised to him. It just hasn't yet been experienced by him. Promised, but not yet in his possession. Now, why does Paul use this analogy? Why does he explain this? Well, we see in verse 3 because it relates. Right? Verse 3 says, In the same way we. Okay? So what's the connection here? How are we supposed to understand our Christian existence, our Christian experience, in the same way of of this child heir who hasn't come into possession of yet? All right, so here's the connection. The analogy he uses is of, of a promise 
that had not yet been realized. Because that's what it was like for the Jews. That's what it was like for God's people before the coming of Christ. There was this promise. Okay? Abraham had been promised by God, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and you're going to have an inheritance. But for a very long time, it was just a promise and not an actual possession. And in between promise and possession, the law, we've been seeing, you saw that even in, in three, the law held God's people captive. Prisoner, right? The law was their guardian. And so Paul's just adding another layer to this description here. Captivity, guardianship, now slavery, right? God's people before Christ came were enslaved to elementary principles. The law, right? The the, the basics of God's instruction and his will for his people. And and I think it best makes sense to understand these elementary principles as God's law because it's easy to connect the dots between verse 3 and verse 5, right? Verse 3, enslaved elementary principles. And then down in verse 5, we see that his people are redeemed, that is, to be purchased out of slavery, right? To have a price paid whereby you're set free from your bondage, all right? They're redeemed from under the law. Right? So Paul is saying that being held captive by God's law, these elementary principles, is like a child heir who's been promised an inheritance but doesn't yet possess it. All right, so that's the point of this illustration. Now let's plug that back into the context of this letter. Remember why Paul is writing to the Galatian Christians. Okay? He's writing to them because they're being told that they need to add adherence to God's law to their faith in order to be fully accepted, in order to really be a Christian. And Paul says, if you do that, you're going in the wrong direction. If you do that, you're taking a step backwards. You're leaving adulthood where you actually possess the inheritance, and you're going back in time to when it was just promised, but you couldn't yet have it as your own. See, these these Jewish Christians, these Judaizers as they're called, were telling the, the Galatian Christians, these pagans who had come to place their faith in, in Christ, they were telling them, if you want to advance in your spiritual journey... You've got to go to grad school and take up the law. That's what you'll really do. If you want to advance in this thing, go to grad school. Take up the law. But Paul is saying, no. The law's not grad school. The law's kindergarten. That's what the law is. The law is kindergarten. That's where you learn the ABCs. You learn the basics, these elementary principles like circumcision, these food laws, and, and these special feasts and days that you need to observe. But see, Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of all those things. Those were just a shadow, 
showing us in advance of what Jesus would do, and he did it. He completed it perfectly. And because Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of all those things, all that you and I need, all the Galatians needed, was faith in Christ for having done those. All right, so let's recap just a bit on this first point. The Father has promised an inheritance. And in His wisdom, He's put the children who will receive that promised inheritance under guardians and managers until they're ready to inherit it. All right? So this brings us to verse 4 and to point 2. This brings us to what Jesus will do to, to accomplish, to, to, to cause us to realize all that the Father has promised. So verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son. So, a wise father appoints a time when the son will be ready to receive the promised inheritance. So it is with our father, right? Uh, the, the, the time being fulfilled, right? That's a, that's a phrase, that's a concept that's mentioned several times in, in Scripture, right? Uh, Mark records it uh, in the first chapter of his gospel, the very first words of Jesus when he begins his earthly ministry. You remember what he says? He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand, right? First words out of his mouth as he, as he begins his, his ministry. Bunches of folks have written about the appropriateness of the timing of when Christ came, okay? Lots of interesting things that can be said about it, how, how culture was at just the right point, Right? How, how the Greeks had, had provided a common language right? for, for the spreading of the gospel message. How, how the Romans had provided infrastructure and roads uh, that eased transportation for folks like Paul who did all his many journeys carrying the gospel message. And, and so those are all interesting to read and I think those are uh, pertinent. But the most important thing, I think, of the time being ready, the time being fulfilled at just the right time, is that people were ready to be released from bondage. People were ready for, yearning for, longing for freedom. Think about the Jews who had toiled under God's law for 1,300 years and had failed fantastically and for the last 400 of those years had lived in silence not hearing anything from God it's not just God's people think about the pagan Gentiles too growing tired of their pantheon of of powerless and capricious gods little g gods that, that could not be satisfied. And you never knew when they were. The, the, the time was right for a Redeemer to come. The people were ready. And, and that's exactly what happened. The people were ready to be set free, and God sent His Son to set people free to, verse 5, to, to redeem them, literally, to pay the price for our freedom. Now, 
in other parts in Galatians, we've already seen and discussed at length some of the specifics of what Jesus did, right, to do this, right? So chapter 1, verse 4, he, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us. Right, so there, there's, a, there's a self-sacrifice, a self-giving. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, right? Christ redeemed us. There's that same exact word, redeemed. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, right? Because cursed is, is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Old Testament scriptures had, had prophesied, right? So these verses in chapter 4 aren't so much about what the son did, as they are about how he was uniquely qualified to be the one to do it. You see that? Tons, tons of things here in, in verse 3. Uh, three super, uh, not in verse 3, in verse 4, sorry. Uh, three super important things about our Redeemer, about what qualified him to do this. Because not any ordinary person could do what Jesus did. It took the fact, verse 4, that he was sent by God, right? Now, what's important about that? What's important about him being sent? Well, it doesn't say that at just the right time he was born or at just the right time he was created or that he was made. It says he was sent. He already existed. Eternally, with the Father, in heaven, he, he himself was divine. He is God, God the Son, equal to the Father in, in glory and might. And the Son had to be divine to be our Redeemer. For for his life and death and resurrection to count for the multitude of us who are redeemed. He had to be divine. But he also had to be human. If he was to die the death that humans deserve to die, he had to be human and so he was born of woman. Human and divine, one person in two natures. But it wasn't just to any woman that he was born. He was born to a Jewish woman. He was born under the law. He was born with the obligation of keeping the law. As a good Jewish boy who would grow up to be Not just a good Jewish man, but perfect, righteous. Jesus had to be human. He had to be circumcised. He had to keep kosher. He had to observe the feast days and the holy days and be at the temple when he was supposed to be at the temple. He did it all perfectly. And so the Son is uniquely qualified to redeem us. Divine, human, righteous. But redeeming us is just half of what Paul shows us here that he did. That's just half of what the Son accomplished. Right? So look at verse 5. He redeems us in order that... 
we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this is big. So important that we understand this when it comes to what Christ has accomplished for us. He redeems us from our slavery. He pays the price to buy us back. But if that's all he did, if it stopped there, then we would just be freed slaves. And that would be wonderful. That, that's better, admittedly, than still being slaves. But we would have still been left with a whole host of, of other problems. Some of us are living our Christian experience like we're simply freed slaves. We say, we're not slaves anymore. Glad that's over with. Now I better get out there and bust it. Better get out there and make a way for myself. Better earn my keep. Better add adherence of the law if I want to be really serious about this thing. If I want to be really accepted. If I want to be really included. But Paul doesn't say that Christ redeemed us so we could get out there and make a way for ourselves. He says we were redeemed so we could be adopted. See, we we go from being slaves to being sons with an inheritance. What, What Christ does for us is more than just taking us off death row. It's more than just taking our slate and wiping it clean. It is both of those things, but it is so much more. Right? Our, our slates have been wiped clean, but they've also had the righteousness of Christ written on them. It's not a blank slate that we're responsible to fill. It's been filled. And all of his righteous acts have been written on our slate as if we had done them. We have been taken off death row. But we've also been welcomed and seated at the table. Seated at your family table with a feast prepared in our honor as, as if we were heroes as if we should be celebrated because we'd done some great thing. Redeemed and adopted. um, One of the commentaries I was using this week read about John Wesley, one of the founders of of Methodism. A good example of, of what this means in practical terms comes from the life of John Wesley. Before Wesley came to Christ, he was a better Christian than most believers at least as far as his outward behavior was concerned. During his days at Oxford, he helped establish a group called the Holy Club. The students in the club went to church, studied their Bibles, fasted, and prayed. They went into the prisons and workhouses to do evangelism. They provided food, clothing, and education for the poor children of the city, yet... All the while, 
they were spiritual orphans in bondage to their own religiosity. It was not until years later that Wesley finally came to trust in Christ only for salvation. As he looked back on everything he had done for God before he came to Christ, he wrote, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. See, if we continue to live our lives out of fear and duty, it shows us we have no grasp of what Christ has done for us. Lyrics to a great hymn that one day we're going to learn that's titled Love Constraining to Obedience, which that just, you can't wait already, I can tell. But there's this, there's this lyric, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a son and duty into choice. That's what our adoption does. That's what we've got to, to grasp. That's what we've got to wrap our minds and our hearts around. And fortunately, we're not up to our own on this. We're not, we're not left to our own to, to grasp it, to figure it out, to beat it into our heads, all that the Son has accomplished for us. That's one of the main jobs of the third person of the Trinity is to help assure us of this reality. So point three, the Spirit's assurance in verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Right? So, so there's two sendings. First, the Son is sent and He redeems us so that we can be adopted. But God knows we're going to struggle. He knows we're going to struggle to wrap our hearts and our minds around this reality. He knows we're going to forget. He knows we're going to revert back to living just like ex-slaves. So the Spirit is sent. And where's the Spirit sent? Into our hearts, right? Which is just a direct fulfillment of, of the prophecy from Ezekiel 36 that we looked at back in the days of talking about what it means to be born again. Right? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so when the spirit is sent into our hearts, he cries out for us. Right? We're not even doing the crying out. It's the spirit at work in us crying out for us. Abba, Father, right? Now, so much has been written about this word Abba, right? Uh, and, and going to great pains to try to figure out, all right, what's the best English equivalent we can come up with? Is, is it Dada? Is it Daddy, Papa? Um, here's what's important to know. It's a term that is very familiar. It is very familiar and not formal. It, it conveys a confidence that you are loved, and it conveys an assurance that you are welcomed 
and accept it. And here's the biggest thing. If, if you only remember one thing about Abba, all right, it's the word that Jesus used to call his Father. All right, do you remember that? Mark 14, he's in the garden the night before he's crucified and he's, and he's praying and he's sweating blood. It says, in going a little f- farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Right? To use the same word that Jesus used when we cry out to God the Father, that is the Spirit's supernatural work in our hearts to give us that assurance, to give us that confidence that we are accepted. Paul would, uh, Paul would later go on in Romans 8 uh, to elaborate on this further. So it's a great parallel chapter to read with this. We'll just look at a few verses uh, starting in 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself, look at this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. That's the Spirit's work. He's deep inside of us, convincing us that we belong to Him as sons, that we've been adopted. No matter how the day's gone, no matter what we've screwed up recently, the Spirit of adoption. And did you realize that that's one of His names? That's one of the ways that, that the Holy Spirit is referred to in, in Scripture because that duty is so important, that role of His is so important. He's a spirit of adoption. And He's actively at work in us, reassuring, convincing us, solidifying the fact in our hearts and our minds that we're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters. So the Spirit takes what the Son accomplished, right? The, the objective reality of what the Son has done in our redemption, in making our adoption possible, that's an objective fact. It's reality, it's finished, it's done, it's complete. The Spirit takes that objective reality and helps us experience it. Helps assure us that it's real. Creates in our hearts this deep, passionate, emotional experience and response to our being adopted. Now, I just used a lot of adjectives that make Presbyterians squirm. Right? Talking about your emotions. Talking about your feelings. Talking about your experience of adoption. We're much more comfortable with putting all our eggs in the, in the intellectual and the theological and the doctrinal basket, right? M- memorizing the facts of what Christ has accomplished for us, but the Spirit says no. The Spirit says you're going to cry out. You're going to cry out, Abba. You're going to cry out, Father. And and, and see, we need both. We need the objective facts about what the Son has done and accomplished and completed for us. 
and we need the passionate emotional experience of what that feels like to be a son, to be accepted, to be loved by our Father. And we tend to err on one side or the other. For some of us, our redemption, our adoption are just intellectual facts. And we could state them easily for you. This is what he did. This is how he atoned for sins. It was a vicarious atonement. It was a penal substitutionary atonement. Right? And rattle it off. That, that's John Wesley. Right? He knew all the facts. He was relating all the facts to people as he evangelized. And I'm sure he led people to the Lord even though he wasn't yet a son. There, there was no spirit at work in his heart causing him to passionately cry out to his father. All right? But we can also err on the side of experience. All right? Always and only looking for that which gives us the warm, fuzzy, tingly sensation. Right? Just going from one experience to another and that's all that we're looking for and that's all that we're placing our confidence in is the quality of our experience, of, of how we feel, right? And, and that's dangerous. We can't place our confidence solely in that because some days we just don't feel like children of God. Our, our feelings come and flow. Our emotions fluctuate. And so some of us never come to grips with the facts of what Jesus did and we never come to the place where we place our Trust in the facts of what Jesus did. No, see, we, we must know of our desperate need to be redeemed from slavery. We must know of the uniquely qualified Redeemer who accomplished that. We must know how He became a curse for us, taking our punishment, giving to us His righteousness. We need to know those truths so that we can place our undivided trust in the person of those truths. And when we do, the Spirit will flood our hearts and, and, and will give us the experience. He will give us the joyful and elated experience of being adopted daughters and sons and crying out to our Abba Father. And, and so may the Father and may the Son and may the Spirit of adoption be praised for this glorious salvation. Let's pray. O triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you, we thank you for this glorious salvation, for this glorious redemption and adoption. It is an act of your grace that is almost too much to fathom. It's almost too much to comprehend. But thank you, Spirit of Adoption, for doing your work in us. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who's never felt that elation, who's never felt that inexpressible joy of being a daughter or a son and no longer a slave. Then Lord, would you bring to them the reality of the gospel? 
that they might place their faith in what Christ the Son has accomplished so that the spirit of adoption might flood their hearts and let them cry out together with all the church, Abba, Father. We pray this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Would you